Will you pray with me? Lord, you opened the meaning of the scriptures to the disciples on the road to Emmaus and set their hearts ablaze. By the power of your spirit, kindle our hearts as we hear your word proclaimed, that we may receive you with joy. Amen. Our scripture today comes from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 24, verses 13 to 35. Hear now God's word to us. Now on that same day, two of them were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem, and talking with each other about all these things that had happened. While they were talking and discussing, Jesus himself came near and went with them, but their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, what are you discussing with each other while you walk along? They stood still, looking sad. Then one of them, whose name was Cleopas, answered him, Are you the only stranger in Jerusalem who does not know the things that have taken place there in these days? He asked them, What things? They replied, The things about Jesus of Nazareth, who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word, before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and leaders handed him over to be condemned to death, and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things took place. Moreover, some women of our group astounded us. They were at the tomb early this morning, and when they did not find his body there, they came back and told us that they had indeed seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but they did not see him. Then he said to them, Oh, how foolish you are, and how slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have declared. Was it not necessary that the Messiah should suffer these things and then enter into his glory? Then beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them, the things about himself in all the scriptures. As they came near the village to which they were going, he walked ahead as if he were going on. But they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, because it is almost evening and the day is now nearly over. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at the table with them, he took bread, blessed, and broke it, and gave it to them. Then their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he vanished from their sight. They said to each other, Were not our hearts burning within us while he was talking to us on the road, while he was opening the scriptures to us? That same hour they got up and returned to Jerusalem, and they found the eleven and their companions gathered together. They were saying, The Lord has risen indeed, and he has appeared to Simon. Then they told what had happened on the road and how he had been made known to them in the breaking of the bread. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Holy God, we ask that you would come and join us on the road of life as well. Open our eyes to see more of you. 
In the name of the risen Christ, amen. We pick up our story from last week, and it's now the evening of that first day of the week. And the astounding story of the women at the empty tomb continues to perplex the disciples. Here we find two of them as they are walking from Jerusalem to Emmaus. We know that they're disciples, but they're not part of the twelve. In fact, only one of them is actually named, Cleopas. Some speculate that the other could have been his wife, Mary. But honestly, in not telling us who this disciple with Cleopas is, it could be anyone. It could be you. Eventually, all of us find ourselves on the road to Emmaus, hurting and walking away from a massive disappointment, maybe even a disappointment with the Savior. They had hoped that Jesus would be the one to redeem Israel. Yet three days ago, they watched him die a gruesome death on a cross. And even after hearing the testimony of the women, it seems impossible to believe what they've heard. They're tired, frustrated, and disappointed, sad. So they head away from Jerusalem toward Emmaus. We don't know where Emmaus is. In fact, we really don't know anything about Emmaus, just that it was seven miles from Jerusalem, as if that's the only important thing we need to know. It's just not Jerusalem, not that place of disappointment and the death of hopes and dreams. Emmaus is the place that is just far enough away to get away from all of it. They could be walking home, or they could simply be trying to get away from the hurt they've experienced. And that's an Emmaus we know. That Emmaus might be a friend or a counselor. For many, Emmaus is burrowing deeper into work, watching Netflix, or returning to old addictions. Wherever Emmaus is, It's not too far away, just far enough from the hurt. And as they're walking along, discussing the hurts and grief of the past few days, they're joined by a third person, who we know to be Jesus, but to them is just a stranger. As I remind you, these two are not part of the twelve, yet in Luke's gospel, they are the first to whom Jesus reveals himself. Which is significant, I think, because as Craig Barnes has said, these are clearly not your first string disciples. We never hear about Cleopas anywhere else, and we don't even get the name of the other one. Like us, they have been following Jesus, even if only from a distance. And like these two, we've received about as much information as they have. They've heard the testimony of the women at the empty tomb, but they've not seen it for themselves. They can't really be certain that Jesus is alive. Yet here Jesus is with them on the road, unrecognizable as a stranger. 
I don't know if you've noticed this, but it's really interesting how the risen Jesus is quite unrecognizable to those he appears. Mary thought he was just a simple gardener. Peter thought he was just a man on the shore asking about fish. And Cleopas just sees him as a stranger on the road. A stranger that seems to have no idea what has happened in Jerusalem. Jesus asked them, what are you discussing as you walk along? And in response, they stood still, looking sad. They stood still, looking sad. Even though Jesus knows exactly what they're sad about, he doesn't seem to rush them along through their grief. Instead, he listens as they recount how the one who they had followed, the one who was mighty and deed, and the one who had pl- they, in whom they had placed their trust and hope had been handed over to be condemned and crucified. We had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. We had hoped. Those are also words we find ourselves saying quite often. Maybe you had hoped that job would come through or hoped your career would be at a certain place by now. You had hoped to get into that particular college, hoped you or your children were not still doing school online, hoped that things would be back to normal. Maybe you had hoped to meet a spouse by now, or had hoped you'd have a baby by now, hoped that relationship would last. You hoped that you had more time with your loved one. You had hoped your faith would be stronger. We had hoped. The disciples had many hopes for Jesus, but none of their hopes included a cross. Yet, here Jesus is. What they couldn't see and what we so often also failed to see is that the hope that Jesus brings comes after the cross when a stranger walks beside us in the midst of our disappointments and grief. When Jesus does finally respond, he replies in a way that initially seems a little insensitive. Oh, how foolish you are, and how slow of heart to believe. It seems insensitive to call someone who's grieving foolish, but I think the more interesting phrase here is slow of heart. Craig Barnes observes that it's as if their hearts can't keep up with what they know. Notice that Jesus doesn't go on to teach them what they don't already know. They know their scriptures. They know the stories. They probably memorized a lot of it. No, Jesus interpreted to them the things about himself in all the scriptures. He interpreted them 
he opened the scriptures so they could find Jesus there and recognize him with them. Were not our hearts burning within us while he was talking to us on the road, while he was opening the scriptures to us? So now they've come to the village, and Jesus walks ahead as if he's going to go on. Just as Jesus gave space for them to stand still in their grief, so does Jesus leave space for them to continue on without him if they choose. One commentator has observed that his love is such that we are always free to turn our backs upon him, close the door of our hearts against him, bolt our minds shut in fear of what inviting him in might involve. Here he makes no ethereal entrance, as in John. An invitation must be issued. And an invitation the disciples do extend, urging this apparent stranger, stay with us. It seems odd, right, to urge a stranger who you you've only been walking with for less than seven miles to stay with you, right? I mean, as children, we're taught to be wary of strangers, the cliche, stranger danger. And that often progresses into adulthood, too. Yet as adults, we can choose a different response. One thing this story shows us is that there's so much more to Jesus than what we see. And now that he's busted out of that tomb, who can say where he might show up? Maybe in someone who feels like a stranger to you. Maybe someone who doesn't look like you, doesn't think like you, doesn't vote like you. But what if that stranger beside you is trying to reveal more of the risen Christ. Unfortunately, you'll never find out unless you take the stranger to heart. After all, this is what it means to be the body of Christ, not to exclude or fear, let alone hurt the other, but rather to embrace and invite the stranger and give them a place at the table. After all, it's not until the disciples are eating at the table with this stranger that their eyes were opened and they recognized him. In urging the stranger to stay with us, we invite into our lives more of the Savior than we can see. And it is here, finally, at the table when the stranger who came in as a guest becomes our host. And it is the presence of Christ at the table, extended and opened to a stranger, which transforms this ordinary supper into a sacrament. He took bread, blessed it, broke it, and gave it to them. And then their eyes were opened, and they recognized him. 
There's a beautiful book by Henry Nouwen called Life of the Beloved, in which he uses those four words, taken, blessed, broken, given, to talk about how Jesus doesn't just do this with the sacrament, but with our very lives. Jesus takes us, chooses us, takes us from our sin and hurt, confusion and fatigue. He takes us from other plans and disillusionment and discouragement. He takes us from guilt. And he takes us. We don't take him. It's all only ever by the grace of God. After taking us, Jesus blesses us. He blesses us to be a blessing, to be used as his means of grace, to be his hands and feet. Like the bread, when we are in the hands of Jesus, our Lord and Savior, all of our lives recover their holiness. He also holds our brokenness, our fears and our failures, our guilt and our shame, our misguided hopes and dreams, our grief and disappointments. He holds all of that brokenness in his own brokenness on the cross. Finally, Jesus gives us for a holy mission, each and every one of us, with all of our experiences, skills, talents, and dreams, as well as our shortcomings, weaknesses, and failures. Jesus transforms all of it so that your very life becomes sacramental. Nothing is wasted in the hands of our Savior. Again, as Craig Barnes says, all of life has a risen purpose to it. Even the time spent wandering around in the wilderness, there is a holy redemption for all of it. Of course, as soon as the disciples recognized him, Jesus vanished from their sight. The unrecognized, visible presence became the recognized, invisible presence. The unrecognized, visible stranger become the recognized, invisible Savior. In the breaking of bread, the risen Savior shows us that he doesn't have to be visible to be with us. And he doesn't have to be visible to the world. That's why he gives us his disciples, to the world. And so the story concludes. Cleopas and the other disciple, now with their eyes open and their hearts burning, immediately got up and returned to Jerusalem to bear witness to what they experienced. They have been transformed in the breaking of bread by Jesus so that they can now return to Jerusalem, to that place of pain and disappointment, but now with hope renewed. This is why worship is so important. 
It's not simply a ritual or a box to check off. We believe that worship changes us. In the illumination of scripture and in the breaking of bread, the eyes of our hearts come to see the risen Lord and Savior among us, walking beside us on every road of life. Here, Jesus meets us in the midst of joy and sorrow, takes us into the hands that bore the cross and all of our brokenness with it, and transforms our lives, blessing us and giving us back to the world in holy redemption. Here, Jesus transforms us to transform the world. No longer must we run to Emmaus, trying to escape the death of hopes and dreams, because we have seen the risen Christ, and he is making all things new. Here, we are renewed to return to Jerusalem with hope, because we know that Christ goes with us. And here we are reminded that the risen Jesus is on the move, and there's no telling where he might show up. He might show up in places and in people we least expect, the ones who seem like strangers. So I leave you with these questions to ponder as you continue to think about this story. Who is the stranger in your life who might be trying to reveal more of the risen Jesus? How is the recognized, invisible Savior walking with you on the road of disappointment or pain? And how might our risen Lord be making a holy redemption of your whole life so that you can return to Jerusalem and bear witness to the risen Lord with us, walking on the road? Jesus Christ is risen indeed, and he is on the move. If only we have eyes to see. Amen.